listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. To preach truth to your people who need to hear your truth. Help us, Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I appreciate the liveliness. The nine o'clock was stuck this morning. Um, you guys are not, so I appreciate that. Let's try something. I'm gonna say amen. You say amen. 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 You can do it. Wow, that's awesome. All right, good morning. If you have a Bible, Matthew 13. We are gonna continue our series this morning through the gospel according to Matthew. This is a series we started back in December of last year, and we're likely gonna be in this book until this time next year. Um, not a joke, it's the truth. And, and I know that creates a polar, polarizing response in the room, perhaps. Some of you love that. You're like, man, I wish we'd go slower. Let's do one verse every Sunday for the next 13 years, right? And some of you are like, it's, it's time, all right? We've been in Matthew for a while. Um, not that it's bad, but let's switch it up, right? And if that's you, if you're in that second group, the good news is we're taking July off. So we'll get five weeks off of the book of Matthew. We'll jump back in in August. Um, But we're going to continue Matthew 13 today. And this is a bit of a turning point in the the gospel of Matthew, because in this chapter, Matthew gives us 13 parables of Jesus, what are often called the the parables of the kingdom. And the reason why they're called that is because in these parables, Jesus is using them to illustrate to his disciples and to the world what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is is like. So this for us, if you're a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, this is uh, the life in the kingdom according to the king. So we should pay attention to this. So there are eight parables in Matthew 13. We're going to cover the first one today and we'll get the rest in the next two weeks, the other seven. And this morning we're going to talk through the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower. So even if you uh, don't have a background in church, you're probably familiar with this or at least the language that we're going to see in this. And the reason we're doing this one by itself is not because it's longer than the other ones, um, it's because in Mark 4, we get a detail that Matthew doesn't give us. Jesus says to his disciples that understanding the parable of the sower is the key to understanding all of the parables. So we're gonna spend a little more time on this one today. So uh, I'm gonna read uh, this for us. I want us to read it together and then we'll spend some time talking about it. But before we do, um, here's kind of my outline for today, right? So for any note takers, we're gonna answer three questions today. The first one is what is a parable? Again, this is key to understanding all the parables, but we need to know what is a parable. Secondly, what does, or why rather, does Jesus teach in parables? And then the third question, which we'll spend most of our time on, is what does this parable mean? What does the parable of the sower mean? So that's our outline today. Let's look at Matthew 13. Verse one says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying this, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and some birds came, devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so he says that same day, Jesus goes and he sits by the sea, right? This is the Sea of Galilee. And this context is important for us because Matthew wants us to know that Jesus doesn't just go into enjoy a day, 
by the sea. That's not what's happened here. He says that same day, which should lead the Bible reader to go, well, what do we know about what's happened in Jesus's life that day? Um, If you were here last week, you might remember, but what we're seeing is because of the power of Jesus's earthly ministry, a response is being created in in the people. So you have these crowds gathering around him. A lot of people are very interested in what Jesus might say, what he might do. And a lot of people are opposed to what he's saying and what he's doing. There's this dichotomy that's forming. the, The point is that King Jesus and his kingdom draws a response out of people. It did in them and it should in us, right? So chapter 12 would say this, that even, even though Jesus would try to withdraw from the crowds, people would follow him wherever he went. So earlier that day, there's this man that's brought to Jesus. He's demon oppressed. And as a result of this demon, he can't speak or uh, see. And the Bible says that with a word, uh, Jesus heals him. A man who can't speak, can't see. Jesus says, no more. And he does. And the Bible says that people are amazed, which I love this word. It actually, the, the literal translation of the word amazed, it means to be put out of place. Again, it's creating a response. People are amazed. Some are amazed and interested, intrigued by Jesus. Uh, others are opposing him, but it puts us out of place because encountering Jesus creates a response in his people. Chapter 12, verse 23 says how some people respond. They say, can this be the son of David? Because of the miracles he's doing, because of the power with which he teaches and he does his ministry, uh, people are saying, can this be the Messiah? Is this the king? Is this the one that we've waited for from eternity past, right? Meaning, is this the Messiah? But the Pharisees don't respond that way because we see they do what? They accuse him of being able to perform those miracles by the power of Satan. And again, some people are interested, others oppose him because Jesus and his kingdom requires a response. So Jesus isn't just at the sea just to, to just because, he's trying to get a moment alone but he can't, right? Verse two says that great crowds gathered around him to the point where he has to get out on a boat so the mob of people don't crush him to get some distance between himself and them so that he can teach them and more people can hear. So let's look at that. Verse two, great crowds gathered about him. He got into a boat, he sat down, the whole crowd stood and he told them many things in parables. So here's our first question, right? What is a parable? Well, the word parable is from two Greek words that are pushed together and one of them means to throw or to cast, and the other one means beside. So literally translated, the word parable means to throw beside, to throw two things beside one another, but the point is more like to put them together. So it's like compare. That's basically what this means. So a parable is a comparison, and it's a parable of the kingdom. So Jesus is comparing earthly things to what these heavenly things are, so to explain and illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. So that's why most of the parables start how? The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like that. It's like seeds or wheat or like we'll see in verse 44 in a couple of weeks, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is hidden in a field that a man finds and in in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field because he wants the treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like, that's what a parable is. Jesus is comparing and illustrating these, using these earthly examples to illustrate these heavenly realities, okay? So the temptation with parables is to just think that's all they are. They're just like, you know, first century sermon illustrations. It's like whatever 80s movie that Bill references, right? Or whatever story I tell about my kids, all right? It's been like two months since I preached, but the last time I did, I had somebody come up and say, listen, love your preaching. You always tell stories about your kids. Like you need to come up with some different sermon illustrations, which if, if you have that thought to tell to some, just don't, okay? <laughs> but secondly, I'm like, I got one life and a lot of kids, so you work with what you got, all right? Sorry, you're stuck. Actually, I'm not telling a story about them today, not because of that reason, because we don't have time, but here we go. When you read Matthew 13, what becomes clear is that Jesus' parables aren't sermon illustrations, right? They are the sermon. 
They're the sermon. Because in verse three, it says, he told them many things in parables. He starts talking about a farmer sowing seeds. He says, there's four different types of soil. And then he says this, he who has ears, let him hear. And the sermon's over. It's not an illustration. It's, it's the sermon itself. So think with me for a second. How would you respond if you came to church and that was the sermon? I sing a couple songs. I walk up here, say this. Say, there's a farmer planted some seed. Most of it didn't grow, but some did. Go be the church. <laughs> right? Some of you be like, that's awesome. We're going to lunch early today because I don't really care what you have to say anyways. Um, others of you would be like, am I missing something? What kind of weird performance art is this? Okay, that's, that's kind of how we would respond. And the encouraging thing about this is that's how Jesus' disciples felt too. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? They basically say, why did you just do that? Because we don't know what you're talking about, Right? And I know that this isn't in the text, but just imagine how the disciples must have felt, right? There's this huge crowd and they've seen this before, right? Jesus' power, his ministry, it's great. Huge crowd, all standing around like this natural amphitheater and he's out on a boat. Peter leans over to Luke, he's like, it's gonna be a big day for ministry in Galilee, right? It's just this anticipation, they're expecting it, right? Jesus, everyone's quiet, what's he gonna say? What's he gonna do? Jesus starts talking and he tells the parable of the sower. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says, all right, boys, let's pack it up. Right, he's done. And then one of his disciples goes up to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, great job, man. Great sermon, loved it. Got a ton out of it. But they didn't get it. Okay, so what, what, what if we tried something else? What was that other sermon you preached? Oh yeah, the one on the mount? We should try that stuff because that worked a lot better. Like imagine how the disciples would have felt. They come up, they don't know. Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? You've been with me all this time, but you don't understand what's happening here? He doesn't do that. He explains to them why he's teaching in parables. Look at verse 11. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. All right, so... Why does Jesus teach in parables? Well, he answers them and he says, I teach in parables so that those, will, those who do see will see more and those who don't see will see less. And you're like, that clears it all up, thanks, you know? He basically says that the point of parables is that they are a tool that divides, that it reveals to some and it conceals from others. And there is a difficult concept in this passage, if you feel that. Because it seems like what Jesus is saying is, I use parables to prevent some people from coming to salvation. That's what that sounds like, right? And I could preach a whole sermon on this one thing and we would never get to the parable itself, but I wanna say two things about that. One, the Bible is clear that salvation is a gift from a sovereign God. It is. That's what verse 11 means when it says to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. The Bible is clear, it has no problem at all in saying that salvation is a gift that comes from a sovereign God and we don't do anything in our life to move the needle to earn that gift from him. It comes from him, it is a gift from him. That's the first thing. The other thing is we need to know who are the people that Jesus is talking about here in verse 13 who see but don't see and hear but don't understand, right? The people he has in mind are folks who although they had the Bible and they had heard the truth preached, they did not seek the forgiveness that God offered. And so they had gone on rejecting God for so long that now Jesus is saying, we reject them. And you'll see this in a second, but this is like what Paul says in Romans 1. 
that even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. So they know who God is, they know what he's done, they know who they are and what God has accomplished for them and what he offers in and through the personal work of Jesus, but they didn't think it mattered. They didn't honor him, they didn't give thanks to him. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Meaning claiming, they, they thought they knew better than God what they actually needed to be satisfied in life and they didn't think they needed Jesus. They chose to worship things that God created instead of the creator. In verse 24, we see the response, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. That's what this is saying and why he quotes Isaiah 6 in verse 14 and 15 because the same thing was happening in Isaiah's day and for his ministry, verse 14. Indeed, in their case, The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart had grown dull. With their their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Again, it sounds like it's saying Jesus is blocking them from seeing because if, he, if they, he moved his hand, they would see Jesus, they would turn, and they would be forgiven. That's not what it's saying. The key point here says they have closed their eyes. Who closed their eyes? They did. They closed their eyes, right? And so because of that, they don't think it matters at all. They see him, but they don't think it matters enough to turn, it says, because if they did, they would be healed by Jesus. This is not a, a new concept, How does the Sermon on the Mount start? Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit because they know they need a savior. The ones who know they need a savior are the ones who look to Jesus to be saved. And they're the ones who turn to him and change their life to align with the way he says they should live it. And they are the ones who as a result are healed, right? They're the ones who come to Jesus and are given the secrets of the kingdom. This is why Jesus says he teaches in parables because a parable will draw some closer and push some further away. So a sincere seeker of Jesus will hear the parable and they will come and they will hear and see more. They will be drawn in closer, sincere seekers, but a superficial seeker will hear it and go, I don't need that and they're pushed away. That's what he says it's happening here, right? So he says to the disciples, some see in here, they don't understand because they don't like the response it requires from them, but he says this about disciples. Verse 16, blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. He says this, your eyes are blessed, your ears are blessed because you see and hear. You know you need a savior and you know that I can meet that need. And there are righteous people, meaning self-righteous people who think they don't need a savior and they wish they could know the intimacy and the fruitfulness of following Jesus like you know. That's what he's saying. So that's what a parable is and that's why Jesus says he taught in parables. Now here's where I wanna spend most of our time. What does the parable of the sower mean? What does it mean? And the good news is, you don't have to take my word for it. We don't even have to take our, our best guess because Jesus tells us, okay? Verse 18. Here then, he says, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the word, the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and he understands it and he indeed bears fruit and it yields in one case 100 fold in another 60 and in another 30. 
So Jesus explains the parable of the sower. And remember, Mark says that understanding this parable is key to understanding all the parables. And he tells us what it's about. Verse 19, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, right? So the seed in this illustration, in this parable is the message of the kingdom, the message and the words of the king, right? It's this, it's the truth that every single one of us who has lived or will ever live has sinned against God. And as a result, we are fully deserving of the consequences of our sin, which is eternal judgment and separation from God. That's where it starts. That's the message of the kingdom. That is all of us. And although this is true about every single one of us, our God is the one who initiates relationship with us. He's the sower. He comes for us. He's the one who casts this seed. He initiates relationship with us. How? He sends Jesus, the only one who could, to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we, our sins could be forgiven and we could be restored into right relationship with the actual God of the universe, not as some secondary class, but as sons and daughters of, the, of God. This is the message of the kingdom that we are given life in and through Christ. That's the only way we can find it. And so now we are given this gift to live as sons and daughters in his kingdom, to live as citizens of the kingdom and joyfully live and submit to his rule and reign in our lives until the Bible says Jesus comes back and makes everything that's been broken better than brand new. We practiced this earlier. That's where you should have said amen. It's the best news in all the world. We get numb to it because we've heard it so many times. What would your life be without that? Jesus says, that's what this parable's about. The seed of the sower is the word of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the word of the king. And the parable itself is about people's willingness and their ability to understand this word, to receive it in us so that it can bring its fruit up in our lives. And Jesus says there's four different types of people because there's four different types of soil. There's the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the soil that he soil that he's calls good. So these four different types of soil describes four different hearts or people as they receive the message of the kingdom and the words of the king. And the way that I've always heard this preach is that it's about salvation. You know, this is, you're one of those four. Which one are you? And have you received the message? And will you go to heaven, right? I've always heard this preached about salvation, but Jesus says it's about the message of the kingdom, which certainly includes salvation. Right, because to be a citizen of the kingdom, you have to come to saving faith by God's grace. But it's about more than that. This is also about not just acknowledging Jesus as king, which is salvation, but our ability to live the way that King Jesus calls us to live. It's about more than just salvation. It's not just that. It's about the life of a disciple of Jesus. And he says there are four different soils, and the same sower throws the same seed on all of them. And if you didn't pick up on it when we just read it, there's one soil he calls good and the good soil is the one who receives the seed and bears fruit and all the rest are basically unfruitful and so they're no good. Three bad soils, one good soil. And I don't know how many of you are gardeners, um, not gardener like Pippin, but actual gardeners. Um, but if you are a gardener and 75% of everything that you planted died, would you consider that a win? It'd be a, a poor harvest. Right? If, if three-fourths of everything you planted died, you wouldn't consider that a win. So we bring that thinking into this parable, and this is discouraging for us. Because we go, man, three-fourths is lost. It's gone. It's unfruitful. It's no good. Um, but we need to know this. To the original audience, the only surprising part of this story would have been the exponential yield of the seed that is sown in good soil. That would have been the only surprising thing about it. So we bring modern thinking into it. We think about farming, tractors. You, basically, the question we go is, why not just plant the seed in good soil? We get too stuck in the weeds, no pun intended, to understand this parable, right? 
Uh, there was totally a pun intended there. No one laughed. All right. Um, we get confused here, but the only, the only thing they would have been surprised by, not the method, not the fact that a sower walked around casting seed on all four and that only one soil produced fruit. The only surprising part in their context would have been that their expectation of a good harvest would have been seven to 10 times what was planted. And Jesus says that his word, the message of the kingdom, when it's planted into the heart of a follower of Jesus, its yield is exponential. It's 30, 60, 100 fold. And their expectation was seven to 10. Here's the point before you check out on me. The point is that Jesus alone is the source of the life that you want. Jesus alone is the source of the satisfaction that you're looking for, the contentment that you want, the only source of the life and joy that you want is Jesus. And I know if you're honest, a lot of you don't believe me. Because you go, I could think of a lot of things other than Jesus that would bring me more joy and satisfaction in my life right now. And I know if you're honest, a lot of you say you believe me but your life says that you consistently look to other things and other people for that satisfaction instead of going to Jesus to get it, right? You claim to have received the good seed of the gospel, but your life doesn't produce any fruit and the soil of your heart is so sun-baked by the things of this world, the seed can't get in and bear its fruit in your life. And it's like you spend your life throwing this seed out on a driveway and you wonder why nothing ever grows, right? We say we belong to the kingdom of God, many of us, which means that we shouldn't expect the kingdoms of this world to satisfy us, but we do. We do. And then we blame God when our idols let us down. And if I could just be honest, this is a really hard sermon to preach because when I look at my life, there are places in my heart that are hard to the words of the king. I don't wanna submit. It's a difficult sermon to preach because if I'm honest, there are places in my own life where I am shallow, where I lack the depth that I need to bear the fruit that God wants to bear in my life. There are, if I'm honest, there are places in my life where even the good things, the fruit of the spirit that's being born up in my life by the power of God, if I'm honest, there are even the good things that are born in my life, there are places in me where I'm being choked out by what Jesus calls the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. This is a hard sermon to preach. But what we need to hear and what we need to see in this is what Jesus calls the soil that does bear fruit. What's he called the fourth soil? Good. Doesn't call it perfect. And there's a difference. He calls the soil good. And so if you have ever, switch, switch gears here, if you've ever had an amazing lawn, it just got the attention of every man in the room, okay? If you've ever had or even desired to have an amazing lawn, you know that even when it looks amazing, it still takes work to keep it that way, right? Because what happens if you neglect it? It's gone. Some sort of fungus you never heard of, some bugs get in there, right? The weeds grow up. Like if you neglect even the best lawn, it's gone. And so in the same way that even the best lawn will lead to all sorts of problems, no one neglects their way into obedience to Jesus and fruitful Christianity can't do it. No one drifts toward godliness. It takes work. It takes tending. And church, being a disciple of Jesus means that you follow him with your life. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you follow him with your life. Not that you used to that one time before you were baptized or that you used to follow Jesus back in college before life got so busy. Being a disciple of Jesus means embracing the lifelong work of soil tilling. 
tending to our hearts and the rocks and the weeds and the thorns that grow up there if we leave them neglected. That's what discipleship is. Day after day, moment after moment, turning to Jesus and being honest with him about the state of our heart and what exists there. That we would quit pretending that everything's fine. And we allow the spirit to remove the rocks and the weeds so that Jesus can bear his fruit in our lives. That's what it means to be a disciple. That we embrace the work of soil tilling. And so we're gonna walk through these four different types of soil, but the question I want you to ask yourself in all of these is this. How receptive is your heart to the message of the kingdom? How receptive is your heart, honestly, to the message of the kingdom, to the actual words of the king? Let's look at the first one. Verse 18 says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The first soil that Jesus mentions is a soil that he describes, seeds sown along the path, which means it's hard, right? So um, again, this isn't, First century is different than the way we farm now. We, we hardly walked through fields. Fields were the way they got from one place to the other. So there were these paths that ran through the fields that the farmers would walk on, sowers, sowing seed, and also that people would walk every single day to get to where they were going. And what happens when you walk on dirt time after time after time? It compacts, it gets hard. And the, the point here is simple. It's the path is hard and so it cannot receive the seed. And he's describing human hearts. And Jesus says that since the seed just sits there, it can't get in, then the evil one comes and snatches it away. So this is a description of a couple different types of people. It's a description of a person who isn't even remotely interested in spiritual things. You, you know these people, you, you're friends with them, right? So am I, like they're great. And they're such a good hang and you have all these things in common with them, but every single time the conversation begins to even turn remotely toward Jesus or spiritual things, they're out. They don't want anything to do with it. Jesus says, they're the, they're the path. They're hard-hearted. They want nothing to do it. So it's that person, but it's also the person who can sit in church Sunday after Sunday and listen to sermon after sermon and yet nothing ever change in their lives. So it's the person who doesn't want to hear truth, but it's also the person who dismisses truth when they hear it. And you hear a point from Bill, not from me, because it'll be real good. And, you, and it, something starts to convict your heart. And you go, is that? No, 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 no you immediately begin to rationalize and to dismiss and explain away why that doesn't apply to you. And the, you know what actually happens for us, many of you? You have the thought, you go, you know who needs to hear this? My neighbor, Bob. He really needs to hear this. Right, we, we, we dismiss it, we justify why it doesn't apply to us. And what happens to the seed here, Jesus says it's snatched away by Satan which is a point in this parable that we don't like to talk about very much but we cannot afford to miss is that we have an enemy an actual enemy, if you're following Jesus, you have an actual enemy, not just a generic force of evil in the world, but a very real and intentional enemy whose aim is not to just disappoint you or frustrate you or make you have a bad day. Jesus says in John 10 that a thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to take from you the life that Jesus died to give you. We have a very real enemy, and what we have to know is that the hard-hearted person that Jesus is talking about aren't just overtly evil people. It includes those people, but it's not just them. And Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what he's drawn our attention to is that Satan wants to captivate us with the soundtrack of the kingdoms of this world so that when we hear the soundtrack of the kingdom of God, we're bored or disinterested. He wants you to hear some other song. 
to be drawn in by some other song, right? Satan is happy, church, to let you compact the soil of your heart and call it Christianity. He's fine with you showing up here on Sunday. He's fine with you being in a community group and reading your Bible and being nice to your neighbor and doing all those things. He's fine with you doing that because you're calling it Christianity and yet you're just compacting the soil of your heart. But where he starts to get nervous is when you let the gospel message actually take root in you and take serious the commands of God so the spirit of God can actually bear its fruit in your life. Where you quit pretending that everything's fine and the marriage is great and finances are awesome and you got no sin going on in there. He's fine with you living that way. He is not threatened at all by, by that. But when we embrace, embrace the life that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls the narrow path, that's hard, but it leads to what? Life. Satan gets nervous when we embrace the path that's narrow but leads to life. So how receptive is your heart to the message of the kingdom? How receptive is your heart to the words of the king? Were there places in your heart that are hard to God's word and you are unwilling to walk in the life that he's inviting you into? Let's look at the second soil, verse 20. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and he immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in him and he endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So the second soil that Jesus mentions is what he calls the rocky ground, right? Jesus says this person is soft and receptive as at first the seed goes in and it springs up with joy and yet the soil is shallow. So there's no root, there's no depth to it. So when persecution comes, when life doesn't go the way they think it should, then it says immediately it's burnt up by the sun. And this word translated falls away when it says they fall away immediately, it means to cease to believe. So these are people, and you know them, you might be one, where you say, I mean, I used to believe that. I used to believe that Jesus stuff, but man, how could that possibly be true? Because life hasn't gone the way that I think it should, right? And Jesus says that they hear the word and immediately receive it with joy and they're excited about it and they go all in on Jesus and they're at church every Sunday when they hear it and they're in a community group and they join a volunteer team and they get a brand new Bible and they print their name on it and they're all in on Jesus. But when life gets difficult, it says immediately they fall away because of tribulation and persecution, which means just as quick as they get excited about Jesus, they lose interest in him because life didn't go the way they thought it would because following Jesus didn't make their lives easier. It made it more difficult because what they didn't know was there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. Here's the thing. This cost is not what might happen in your life as a Christian, as a disciple, as someone who actually follows Jesus. This cost is what will happen. And I can say that confidently because following Jesus will bring about opposition in your life and invite you persecution. It will cost you something. And here's the thing, if it never does, if you follow Jesus your whole life and it never costs you anything, I hate to say this, but you're not following him. And I can say that confidently because John 15 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is a cost of following Jesus. And oftentimes in our culture, the cost is social. What I mean by that is actually following Jesus and living your life, life the way that he wants you to will have social ramifications on you. 
social ramifications that most of us, or at least some of us, aren't willing to endure. Which means that the approval of the people around you means more to you than the approval of God. It means more to you than the gospel word, the message that although you don't deserve it, you, you, what you actually deserve, and so do I, is eternal punishment and separation from God because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We are reconciled to the one true God of the universe who actually loves you. That's the good news of the gospel. You are eternally improved of by God the Father because of the work of the Son on your behalf. But what we value more, yeah, that's true, I like that. But what we value more than that is I need this person to think I'm cool. I need the guy that I'm working with to think that I'm awesome or the, the guy in my golf group or the girl in my class or whatever, right? We, we value what people think of us more than what God thinks and what he says is true about us. And so we follow Jesus as long as it's culturally and socially convenient. And oftentimes what happens, he says here that immediately they fall away. What happens in our culture is they don't abandon the faith altogether. What we do is we just adjust it. We just adjust it to be more appropriate to and more palatable to modern minds, and we say, it's 2022, man. I, we, don't, we don't believe that anymore. We can have it both ways. We can follow Jesus and still kind of adjust Christianity. But here's the thing. Adjusting Christianity even a little bit is the same thing as abandoning it. Because Christianity says, he's king. He is Lord. He is the one who gets to say what's good, what's right, what's true, and what's beautiful. And we get to follow after him and live joyfully under his rule and reign as citizens of his kingdom. And as soon as we say, I know better than God does, we're Romans 1, claiming to be wise. They became fools. We exchange. We take Jesus off the throne. We put ourselves there. And we, adjusting Christianity at all is the same thing as abandoning it. And living this way is proof for some of us that we have shallow soil. We like the big moments. We like the easy moments of following Jesus and fruit bearing, but we experience opposition and we think the answer must be to shrink back into some version of moderate cultural Christianity, some set of beliefs that doesn't require us to change it all, that doesn't ruffle any feathers. But Jesus says, when you live that way, when you feel like, let's just be more palatable, let's just make it more easy to come in. When you live that way, Jesus says, that is the seed, the gospel message dying in you. He says it's dying in you. So how receptive is your heart to the message of the kingdom, the words of the king? And if you recognize shallow soil in your heart, are you willing to do the hard work of being honest and not pretending and let the spirit dig some of those rocks out of you? Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The third soil that Jesus mentions is a soil that is full of thorns. This is a description of a divided heart. There is good soil there. This is why this is so devastating to me because there's good soil there. And actual fruit of the spirit is being born in these people's lives but because of what he calls the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, it chokes them out. It's devastating. This is a description of a heart that's divided. It's a person who would gladly affirm the doctrines of Christianity, but who does not treasure the Christ of Christianity. It's a person that loves Jesus. You love him and you have genuine affection for him because you believe that he came and lived and died for you so that you could be restored into life with God forever. You believe it and you love him for it, but you also love the world. And Jesus says, that'll choke you out. That will choke the spiritual vitality out of your life. And notice, the group 
that, that this group, they don't fall away immediately like the rocky soil. The, the rocky soil, they're gone immediately. This one, they're choked out. There's a difference between being knocked out and being choked out, isn't there? There's a difference. One is in a moment and one is gradual. And Jesus says, this is happening around you. Your love for the world is growing up around you and it will choke the spiritual vitality out of your life. And I think, church, the reason why I'm so tender to this, because it's true in my own life, and I think it's true in us, that if we lack good soil in our hearts, this is the predominant bad soil that exists in us. People who affirm Christian doctrine but are detached from Christ because we are so attached to this world. And Jesus says that even though there is fruit, the thorns grow up and choke them out where they eventually die. So what thorns is Jesus talking about here? Verse 22, he says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And I think this is interesting where he goes because if you didn't read that, you might expect something different. Because we get a lot of teaching in the church on rebuking people for shameful sins that they, that they live in secret. And we should, because we should align our lives to the way that the king says we should live. We should be rebuking those people. But how many people do you know who've gotten rebuked for allowing their love of God to get choked out by their pursuit of the American dream? We don't have near enough teaching about the compromised lives that we, feel, that we live in full view and if I'm honest, man, I would be at the front of that line. And I'm telling you, this is a hard sermon to preach. But we need it. Because Jesus says, living this way is the seed dying in us. So what are the thorns that Jesus talks about here? He says the first one is the cares of this world. The cares of this world. Let me explain it this way. First Peter 5, this will make sense in a second. It's like you're just reading another text, that's not explaining it. It'll get there. First Peter 5, he says, humble yourselves, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your, what? Anxieties on him, or cares, because he cares for you. So Matthew 13, the word cares of this world is not the word cares in 1 Peter 5 that we just read, it's the word anxieties. And this is what he's saying. This word means fear or worry or anxiety. Peter, Peter's saying, you put your worries, your fears, your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. But he's saying the person choked out by the cares of the, this world isn't satisfied to rest in the care of God because they have to be the one in control. And you can't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because you don't trust that he's good, right? And, and they're anxious because it's up to them to make sure that their life and everyone's life around them works out the way they want it to. And so you live in this desperate sense of pace of going, well, my, if my life is gonna be the way I want it, I need to get into this school and I need to have these friends and I need to get this job and then this promotion and then this thing and you gotta control everything. And you, your life should go this way and you control and manipulate it. But deep down it's a trap because you know you can't control it. You want to and you feel the need to, but you know you can't, so you get insecure and you feel overwhelmed and, and anxious, right? And so you try to control more. And it's a downward spiral which leads to more anxiety and more control until eventually you wake up one day and you can't get out of bed. But it doesn't get that bad for most of us. For most of us, it just lives under the surface. Just anxious. Just feel like, man, I just can't really trust them and I gotta try to constantly be manipulating the situation to, in order to find joy and satisfaction in this life. And the thorn is present in our hearts and Jesus says, humble yourself under his mighty hand. Which means let him be God. Because not only is he the only one that has the power to do 
anything about the things that you're worried about, he cares for you. He actually cares. You put your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let him be God. You can trust him. And Jesus says, if we don't, if we run around thinking that we have the power to control, manipulate, and to to create the life we want, he says that weed will choke the spiritual life out of us. The other one, he says, is the deceitfulness of riches. And it's deceitful because it's an illusion. It makes you think it can give you something, but it can't, right? And I think these two things are connected. It's not too mutually exclusive, like, well, the two things that'll choke you out are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of the riches. They're connected. They grow together slowly but surely, and if you don't tend to them, they choke the spiritual life out of you. The reason why they're connected is because what on earth makes us feel most safe and most in control? Money. And Jesus says that thorn will choke you out too because when you have enough money to buy the life that you think you need, then you have no need to trust God. I don't need him. I mean, I'm thankful for him. I'm sure he can help some other people, but I'm good. It's the deceitfulness of riches is what Jesus says. And, And this is why in Matthew 6, he says this, no one can serve two masters. No one. And many of us in this room, we go, I'd kind of like to try. He says it's impossible. You cannot serve God and money. No one can serve two masters. And so this isn't Jesus trying to keep you from the good life. It's not bad to have wealth. It's not bad to own things. The question is, does your money and the things that it can buy you, does that own you? Does your money own you? Is it your master or is he? Because he says you cannot serve two masters. Here's the point. Your future is not secure because of the balance in your retirement account or your checkings account, savings account, or whatever other account you got that I ain't got. Your future is not secure because of the balance in any account. Your future is secure because Colossians 2.24 says that Jesus cancels the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands by what? Nailing it to the cross. Our future is not secure because of the balance in our account. Our future is secure because Jesus paid in full the debt that you owed by laying his life down on the cross on your behalf. How receptive is your heart to the message of the kingdom and to the words of the king? Are your affections divided? Are there places in you where these thorns exist in you? And if there are, will you be honest enough to let the spirit do the work of uprooting those in your heart so they don't choke the spiritual life out of you? Or do we know they're there? We know our love for the world exists. We know it's there and it causes us pain every once in a while. We get too close to it, but ultimately we like it. So we want it to stay. Let's look at the last soil. Verse 23. It says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. It's what we talked about before. Those who are poor in spirit, you hear the word, you hear the good news of the gospel that says, Sinner, deserving eternal judgment and punishment from God, and yet 
but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. You hear it, you understand it, and you follow him. You say, I need that. I want that. And those are the people, Jesus says, good soil. He calls us good soil, not perfect, not that there's no rocks or no weeds or nothing, but we're good, it's there. And he plants the gospel message in us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are willing to tend the soil that's in our heart, he bears his fruit in us. That's why it says 160 and 30 fold because this was exponentially more than they would ever think possible in their lives. And the point is this is God's work in you. This is God's work in you. This is what he wants to do in you. And yet this type of harvest doesn't just spring up. Like we said, no one drifts toward godliness and fruitfulness and following Jesus. It takes work. It takes that lifelong work of the disciple of soil tilling, which means that not only is God the one who does this work in you and he desires to do this work in you, but he's invited you to play a role in the work he's doing in the world. And it starts in your own heart. He's invited you to participate in the work that he wants to do in your life. This is one of my favorite verses. It won't be on the screen. Just listen. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord and then we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, which means the power of the Holy Spirit removes the veil so that we can see the beauty of Jesus, know our need for a savior and he meets that need in full. And as we live our lives looking to him, not pretending that we don't need him or that we're fine without him or that the, world, the kings of this world can provide what only the kingdom of God can and what only the king can, when we look to Jesus, what happens? We're transformed. We grow from one degree of glory to the next and this is the work of Jesus in our lives. Church, how receptive is your heart to the message of the kingdom? How receptive is your heart to the words of the king? Where are you hard? And you don't wanna hear what he has to say. Where are you shallow and rocky? And where are you full of thorns, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches? Jesus Our God is the one who takes the stony heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. The spirit wants to do the work of softening you. Will you let him? Let me pray for us and let's respond this morning to the good news of the gospel and song. Father, I'm grateful that you don't leave us on our own to find a way out of the mess of our sin. You send your son. Thank you, God, this morning for the good news of the gospel. I pray for this church, for the men, the women, the children in this room, and ask, God, that you would give us soft hearts to hear this morning, brand new, the good news of the message of the kingdom, that though we were lost, now we're found. That we belong to you, not because of what we do, but because of Christ has done. So help us, God, to hear that, to not grow enraptured by the the soundtrack of the kingdoms of this world, God, but we learn to listen to you, learn to look to you. We need your help for this. It's hard, you know that. That's why you give us this warning and you teach the parable of the sower. Help us this morning to have ears to hear and have eyes to see that you are better. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, let's respond through song.